You can go and open your Bibles, make your way to Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. There was a children's play a while back at a church that was put on, Christmas play, where the highlight of the play was, was to highlight and illuminate little baby Jesus in the manger scene. So what they had done in setting up the stage was they'd hidden the light bulb in the manger, and at a certain point in the play, all the lights were going to be shut off except that one that illuminated baby Jesus in the play. And so the kids, you know, they, they've done their play. They get to the point where all the lights go off and all of them went off, including the manger bowl. And in the silence, in the darkness, it was said that you could hear one of the little shepherd voices dressed up, whisper in that loud stage voice, Hey, you turned Jesus off. I laughed at that. I was like, yeah, I could see that happening with our kids. But uh, what do you do in those improv moments, right? But nonetheless, that story illustrates really one of the thoughts that I've had during this Christmas season. When I asked a few weeks back for Bo and Dwayne to take a week and just teach on one of their favorite aspects of the Christmas account, this was the thought that I had that I shared during worship is, you know, it's so, it's so easy to really lose sight of what Christmas is about, to turn Jesus off when it's his own story, and, and he not be the illuminated aspect of what we're doing. And I find myself in the busyness of the season really trying to fit God into my story rather than really orientating me around the fact that God has included me in his story. And that's the real issue. Uh, and so I wanted to share just some thoughts on that. And a passage that came to mind as I started searching the scriptures was in this passage, Hebrews chapter 10. Now I know you're probably not thinking... Christmas passage in the book of Hebrews. How does that work? But it's here, and I'm going to show it to you. So let's read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. We'll read through verse 7, and then we'll walk through these verses and point out how this really is the Christmas account. Verse 5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this passage, these powerful three verses, Lord, that really stretch across in their truth through all the Bible. Father, how Christmas was the fulfillment of your plan of redemption for us. And that's what we're celebrating. And so, Lord, these aren't going to necessarily be new truths. But, Father, I pray that they fall on us in a new, fresh way. That we're refreshed, we're rejuvenated by what we look at this morning. That as Mark said earlier, exactly correct, you, before the ages began, had a plan in place for us. And that is astounding, Lord. <coughs> and not only that you have a plan, but you enacted and you worked your plan on our behalf. When we were helpless, when we weren't even looking for it, you were doing it for us. And that is grace. And we thank you for it, Lord. 
Thank you for calling us into the marvelous light that Paul talks about that is Christ and out of the darkness of the world. We might have hope and joy perpetually. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's make our way through Hebrews 10. And I pray it's, it's a refreshing look for you. So verse 5 opens up. Consequently, when Christ came into the world. I want to draw your attention first to that first word, consequently. As we study the Bible, I always also like pointing out key words are important to note. That happens to be one of the key words, consequently. What it's referring is, is back to what he's just said. And really, Hebrews is a difficult book to understand. But all the way up until this point, what was previously said is that the writer has taken time to detail the covenant of the law versus this new covenant that's found in Christ. And he's comparing and contrasting the two. And he's showing up to this point how the covenant that was made in Christ's blood is so much more superior than the old covenant of the law. And the old covenant of the law, what that represents is man trying to make his way to God by his own righteousness. The new covenant is exactly reversed. It's God making his way to us by his righteousness. And so the book of Hebrews is, a, is an incredible, incredible book. I love it. It's difficult, but it's incredible. So under this old story, men tried to make their way to God by their works. They would offer offerings of bulls, rams, goats, pigeons, year after year after year. Because even though they had a form of righteousness, it was always short of the righteousness of faith in God. And there was also the presence of sin continually. And so because of the presence of sin, there needed to be sacrifices. Hebrews 9, 22, just before our passage, says this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But he goes on to say, here at the end of uh, chapter 9, that the bulls, the goats, the rams, etc. that were offered under the law. It was impossible for those to take away sins. And so, man was put in a dilemma. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And yet the bulls and goats and everything else that were continually offered up. They couldn't take away our sins. So, man's left in this predicament. I have to have blood to be forgiven. Yet these sacrifices won't ever do it. What do we do? That's the dilemma of mankind. And it's intentionally designed to be a dilemma for man by God. Paul talks about in Galatians that, that God put everyone under the law to confine him to sin. Why? So that they might look to the Savior. Because there's no other hope. When you're confined under the law, you have to have blood to be forgiven. Yet these sacrificial offerings will never do it. So you can see right away that if the story were to end there, it would be a miserable, hopeless ending for us. It would be a miserable, hopeless existence. No matter how good our righteousness is, we'd still have sin. We'd still be in need of forgiveness with no way for it to be taken away. But as we go through this Christmas season, as I thought through this point, I thought, you know, this is still... Despite people hearing this truth over and over and over, this is how people worship and live their life year after year after year. Nonetheless, they still are, are trying under this old way 
of, of trying to make their way to God. And the whole Christmas narrative is God's made his way to us in a new and living approach. And, and th this, this whole Christmas message has become so familiar, we lose how radical that really is. God becoming man. So how does man still attempt to make his way to God? I wrote several points down. One, we hold to a righteousness of our own, right? We, we continually think, well, I'm not that bad. I do this, this, and this. But I also do this, this, and this. We still hold to a righteousness of our own. We haven't come to the place where we say like, well, I have no righteousness of my own. I am completely without righteousness. Or we practice superficial forms of worship. It does not take long to find this, not only in America, but in the world. There's worship services going on every day. Men trying to make their way to God. Or we perform some form of religious ceremony or duties, right? We were baptized as a child or you know, we go to a catechism or you know, whatever it is. The religious forms and ceremonies are endless in the world, and they're not particular only to the Christian faith, but to any faith. They're full of them, and they're all attempts to make our way to God, to present ourselves before God as righteous and worthy. This was the problem with the Jews when Jesus came. Their own stubbornness and their own self-righteousness prohibited them from seeing the purpose and plan of God in Christ. They stubbornly held to that form of worship and self-righteousness. And because of it, they were blinded to who this man who stood before him was and why he'd come. It's a mystery of mysteries to me as I think about that. I remember, and I've communicated this before, but I got, I got the opportunity to go to Israel one year. And uh, we, we walked the, the path that Jesus would have walked out to Golgotha. And we did that path on a Sabbath day. And, and as we walked it, we, we exited the gate, the, the big city gates there, out to the mountain of Golgotha right there. And my brother stopped. And all these people are making their way into the old city. And we're walking out. And he says, this is exactly what it would have been like for Jesus. He said, except Jesus, he, he was being sacrificed on the Passover. So all these people would have been making their way right past him to go make their offering to God. When the offering of God was right amongst them, making his way out from them. And that has stuck with me so vividly, that reality that here Jesus, the Lamb of God, was going out to be their sacrificial offering. And people were bumping into him, <coughs> passing him, and they didn't know it. Because they're carrying their little lamb thinking that that's sufficient. And the very Lamb of God was right there with them. Millions of people are trapped at this point. And so Christmas is a powerful testimony to the world still of God's plan. And that's why Hebrews 10 verse 5 opens up with that word, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, what did He say? Because he entered the world and things changed. Well, this is what he said. This is what the scripture testifies. Was Jesus' message when he came into the world. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. 
but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I love talking about, uh, about that word, behold. It's a good word. Literally, when you see that word in Scripture, behold, it's, it's intended to arrest our attention on what is being said or revealed. It's meant to grab you and say, look at this. That's literally what it means. Look at this. Consider this. It's meant to arrest us and stop us in our tracks. It's a marvelous verse. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's coming into the world, according to verse 5, and his message is stop and listen to this truth. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, O God. And then he says in verse 6, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. There's a... Um, there's a good verse. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 1 real quick. Make your way over to Isaiah chapter 1. Wanted to read this with you. It's beginning in verse 10 of Isaiah 1. Isaiah writes this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now that is certainly not a people Sodom and Gomorrah I'd like to be compared to. Nonetheless, it's true. Verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Next time we think that our worship or our sacrifices or whatever God takes pleasure in, just remember that passage. They're a burden to him. There's yet one sacrifice and offering that he was pleased with, and he testified, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So Christ came into the world in Hebrews 10, basically quoting Isaiah chapter 1. And he says, behold this message, this whole religious edifice that we've built trying to make our way to God, he does not delight in. We need to see this. We need to understand this. I quote a couple hymns here. One hymn writer beautifully stated it this way. Give me sight, O Savior, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary. O make me understand it, help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, 
to bear away my sin. Beautifully stated. My favorite Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, captures this wonderful truth. I love this hymn and I love this part of the song. We're going to sing it, by the way, at our Christmas concert. It says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's the truth of what Christ has just proclaimed here in Hebrews 10. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. These sacrifices are no more. You've given me a body. But this will, he says in verse 7 of Hebrews 10, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it was written of me in the scroll of the book. Paul, or Jesus said this about the will of God in John chapter 4. Jesus testified, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, God is revealing his will through Jesus, through the coming of Jesus. And it's not only his will to man, but it's his will for man. Accomplished through Jesus. Paul said it this way. Let me quote Paul out of Colossians. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages past. You see, this will of God revealed in Christ Jesus, it was not widely understood or known. It was prophesied about in the Old Testament, as Jesus says, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. But the exact nature and work was hidden. It was a mystery. And that's what Paul says. It was a mystery hidden, kept secret for long ages past until Christ appeared. He says, but it has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings, it has been made known to all nations. So that's God's will being made known to man. But Paul goes on, he says, it was done according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now there's God's will for man. So it's a statement, Jesus says in Hebrews 10, that he is both willing and actively doing his will to and for man. So what is the will? You're going to like this verse. It's such a perfect verse for what we're talking about. What is this will that this Christ came to do that he said in Hebrews 7? Well, John 6, 38 through 40, here's what Jesus said. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Here's our answer. What is this will that Jesus came to do? This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So that's the will of God. That Jesus said, I've come to do your will of God. What's the will of God? That everyone who looks on me and believes would have eternal life. We still don't have the details yet. So let's try and fill this in a little bit more. In Hebrews 10 verse 5, Jesus said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now immediately we think of the birth of Jesus, right? The incarnation of God. It is one of the mysteries of the faith. 
It's one of those truths that does not contradict reason, but it certainly goes beyond our reason to comprehend. Same is true for the Trinity and others. They don't contradict reason, but they certainly are a mystery because they go beyond our ability to comprehend it. The incarnation, a body you have prepared for me. It's a marvelous truth, the incarnation of God. Let's look at it. I'll quote another popular Christmas song. It's not an old hymn, but it's a new Christmas song I love. It says it this way. Oh, before the silent night, no Savior and no Jesus Christ. The world cried out so desperately, and the baby boy was the reply. Yes, heaven's reply was the baby boy. In the context of Hebrews 10, the body was given to this servant Christ as a substitute to the bulls and rams that had been unendingly offered and yet ineffective to do the job. So the body is the substitute for that system of worship. It would replace it. And as Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. See the imagery there in the Old Testament temple. The high priest would have to go behind that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. And he alone was allowed to go in there and make the sacrifices. And we know what happened when Christ was crucified. That veil was torn and fell. Declaring to everyone that we have access to God through Jesus. And that's what Hebrews has just said. We have confidence to enter the holy place by what? Not the blood of goats and rams, but by the blood of Jesus. Well, that implies that he had a body. And that's what he goes on to say. He opened up for us this new and living way. How? Through the curtain, which was his flesh, his body. So a body you have prepared for me. Why? So that we can have confidence to come to God in a new and living way through Jesus. Hebrews 7.27 says this, that Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice once for all. Jesus himself said it this way in Matthew 20.28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why was Jesus born? Why was heaven's reply to us this baby boy in flesh? Because he was doing a work that only he could do and that would transform humanity. That only he could. Incredible, revolutionary truth that was just declared in the scripture. Behold. I love that. Behold this truth. I've come to do your will. And that will was that God gave him a body that we might come to him in a new living way. But there's some points I want to add to this text that aren't specifically addressed in our passage in Hebrews 10. And the third point is this. Not only is Christmas God's story for us and how he accomplished it through Christ, as we just read, but he's calling us and inviting us to be a part of it. There's a poem that says it this way. I have this old book. As you guys know, I love old stuff. It's called The Sacred Seasons by this very old, awesome pastor. And so what I did is I went through and I read the Advent season, the Christmas season. And he's got sermons and old uh, 
prayers, and, and it's, it's just beautiful. I may read some of these prayers for you on, on the Sunday before Christmas, but I'll say that. But this poem was in this book. Here's what it says. When in the pathway of God's will, thou seemest at a stand, fretting for wings to scale the hill, and tired of foot and hand, at blessed Bethlehem leave thy gloom, there learn divine content, by manger, workshop, cross, and tomb, thy Lord to triumph went. Isn't that cool? And what it's telling us is this. His invitation is this. Enter in to my story. All the gloom, all the weariness, all the fretting will be left behind. Why? Because the Lord, as it says here, by manger, works off cross and tomb, triumphed over all. And that's the invitation for us. Here's the invitation. Let me read it out of Matthew 11, 28-30. This is Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation is also for sinners. It's not for the righteous. And that's what Christmas tells us as well. If Jesus was born, why? To take away the sins of the world through the offering of himself. Then Jesus and the Christmas invitation is for sinners. It's not for the righteous. Again, here's Jesus telling those self-righteous Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's out of Matthew 9, 12 and 13. I can remember hearing that verse and that passage before I came to faith in Christ. And it's... It, didn't sit well with me. And the reason it didn't sit well with me because I was still holding on to self-righteousness. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me, unless I embrace the truth that I don't have righteousness, I'm not invited? Yes, that's what the scripture says. The invitation is not for the righteous. That's pretty stark truth, right? I mean, anyone who would hold on to their own righteousness... You're not invited to this message. This message is for sinners. But you know what? When the burden of your own sin finally comes onto your own conscience and heart, how inviting that is, right? Oh, I don't have to be righteous? And I can come? Yes. Christ came to call sinners, not the righteous. Consequently, the promises for those who would receive him, John 6, 40... For this is the will of my Father, as I read earlier, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. And I want to read John three sixteen through 18. We usually only quote verse 16, but listen to this invitation and promise. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now here's the conditions. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, that old form of man trying to make his way to God, God's done away with. And he set up Jesus and Jesus alone 
as God coming to man and redeeming us. And so to deny the Son, to not place your faith in Him, is to deny your only avenue of hope. There's no other way. So there's the invitations, and there's the promise of this Christmas message of why Christ, Christ came, who He came for, and who He's inviting. But there's also a truth that's equally important in Scripture. Just as the promise was made that Christ would come the first time, as we read in Hebrews 10.7, as it's written of me in the scroll of this book, there's, there remains a promise yet fulfilled that He will come again. So just as we celebrate the real and literal coming of Christ into the world, we also proclaim He's yet to come again. In fact, on December 23rd, what we're going to do right before Christmas is we're going to have communion. Pretty cool. Most people may not associate communion with Christmas. We should. Because it captures all this. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim his death, what? Until he comes. And this is this last truth that I want to bring your attention to. It's interesting, if you go to the book of Revelation, I'm not going to have you... Well, go to actually, actually go to chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. This was God's last revelation to mankind. Four times in this entire book, a phrase is repeated. One time in chapter 3, verse 11, it said, and then the other three times it said is in the last chapter of the last book of the last testament of God. Now, just by looking at this phrase, we're going to look at it in a minute, but if you were to, to just say, okay, this is the last chapter that God would ever speak to man in. And three times in that chapter, he says the same thing. Would you conclude that that's probably something he wants us to know? I would. First in chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, look at that. Behold, I'm coming soon. And then in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely, I'm coming soon. And then it ends. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The very last words of God to us are what? I'm coming soon. <laughs> That's part of the Christmas promise. He came the first time and he accomplished the work of man's redemption. It's not finished yet. This is one of the great motivations, if not the greatest motivation for evangelism. While we remain here and wait either to go to him or he to us, many, many missionaries have testified to the fact that when this truth really grabs our heart that he is coming again it transforms your motivations your daily living because if it's true surely i'm coming soon if that's true and as jesus said in the gospel of matthew you don't know what hour i'm coming so be ready when we live like that why would we not share this christmas story christ is still in the world reconciling sinners Yet he's in the world through his mystical body, the church, which is the housing of the Holy Spirit who dwells and abides in us. So as his mystical body, we are his hands, his feet, his mouth, the scripture says. 
We are animated and empowered by His Spirit who abides in us to continue to do His will and work. Well, what did Jesus say He came to do? To seek and save the lost. And He's still doing that through His body, the church. Christ is still in the business of drawing and calling the lost to salvation through Jesus. And He wants to use us to do it. And we celebrate this Christmas message, which our culture has hijacked and made it into something it's not. And we need to, without shame, lay the hope of what the Christmas message is before them. And what that's going to require from us is to understand, if this were not God's story, it would just be another opportunity this Christmas season to serve ourselves. But what we claim is that Christ served us. So the second coming is not going to be like the first. It will be a day of judgment for those who have refused to believe in Him. Yet it will be the fulfillment of salvation for those who have believed. For those who have not turned from their sin and believed in Jesus, it will be terrifying. In fact, Revelation talks about how they will cry out that the very rocks of the mountains fall on them from hiding them from His presence. It will be so terrifying. That would be a better alternative. But to those who have turned to Jesus from their sin and believed, it will be glorious. Either way, the promise is that Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes, he shall reign forevermore. I want to take you as we conclude to Daniel. Go find the book of Daniel. In my Bible, it's page 15. No, I'm just kidding. As I surveyed, I didn't read the entire book of Daniel this week, but I, I read portions of it. And as I surveyed the other chapters, there was a constant theme that jumped out at the book. There are many kings and kingdoms talked about in this book, whether earthly or spiritual or future. That is a constant character and setting of the book of Daniel. It opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel in his parade, right? And then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about future kingdoms. And Daniel has to interpret that, what that means. And then there's kings that replace Nebuchadnezzar on this earth and their kingdom. And then they have dreams. And I mean, there's these constant statements about kings and kingdoms. But one theme emerged above consistently overall. Though there's these earthly kings and there's these frightening visions of kingdoms to come, there's one king and kingdom prophesied who's over all of them. And that's continual through the book of Daniel. I want to read one of those portions. This is out of chapter 7. Let's read 9 and 10 and then 13 and 14. Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. What a description. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Then in verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations language serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. That's the end of the Christmas story. And what a great one it is. So in conclusion, I want to summarize for you just some things to think about this Christmas. One, that the coming of Christ was God's will. Just let that sink in. We weren't looking for this, yet God's will was to send Christ for you. Christmas was God's will. He's been working on our behalf before we even existed. He cares for us. And he loves us. Secondly, think about this. The coming of Christ was God's accomplishing a new way for man to come to him. We couldn't do it the old way. We were barred forever. But Christ opened up a new and living way as we read in Hebrews. Third, the irony of all this is that it involved God having to first come to us. This new and living way. But as Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 12, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he would bring many sons to glory. And last of all, as we enter this season, and most important perhaps, seek to radically change the way we worship and go about this holiday season. In other words, don't try to make God part of your Christmas story this Christmas season. Don't be like that woman who... who carelessly went out to buy the cards and didn't look at even what she was sending. <laughs> and that's how we treat Christmas, right? We, we go buy our gifts and we got to do this, this, and this, and this. And we don't even stop to think about what are we even celebrating? This is God's story. Rather, recognize that God has graciously made you part of His story. And that will be the motivation and the transformation you need to continue to be able to worship during Christmas. When you stop and let that truth sink in, God's made me part of His story. And I know how it ends. And that is cool. So with that, we're going to sing another song, another Christmas song by Chris Tomlin, that is very appropriate for that message. But would you pray with me, please? Father, we just thank you so much for that grand, grand truth that we read. It's all over Scripture, Lord. We don't have to turn simply to the Gospels to see the Christmas narrative. The Gospels record that unveiling of God's plan, the birth of Christ in the manger, and it is marvelous. But the truth of Christ comes everywhere. Of why he came. And it was to do your will. And what your will was, is you desire to save us. Because you love us. Because you love the world that you gave. Your son to us. And that's, that's our hope. That's what we celebrate. Father, it's not over yet. And we look forward to that day when you will reign forevermore. And righteousness will be the, the rule and law. Sin, sadness, sorrow... 
There'll be no more. Neither sickness nor death. Paul would say in Romans, nothing will be able to separate us from your love. Thank you for such hope, Lord, secured by the blood of Christ, which was sufficient for us. So as we sing this last song, Lord, fill our heart with just thankfulness, joy, and hope. In Christ's name we pray.